Welcome to Empower Half an Hour, a mental health podcast that brings firsthand interviews and testimonies to you. Welcome to Empower Half an Hour. My name is Brandon Spatz and I'm your host. Joining us today is Scott Bullock. Scott works for Dayton Children's Hospital as a clinical director of eating disorders. He has been working in the mental health field for 30 years and has specialized in eating disorder treatment for 15 years. Scott received his bachelor's degree from Wilmington College in psychology and sociology, followed by earning his master's in social work from the University of Pittsburgh. In his career, Scott has been active in committee work, teaching, guest speaking, and has had several media appearances. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Brandon. So before we get started, uh, this topic means a lot to me. Um, You might not have known, um, but I have struggled with an eating disorder, uh, more specifically anorexia, and then uh, running addiction in the past, and has had um, about nine months of treatment for it. And um, this episode really is something that is something that needs to be talked about more. And then also, um, this will have some resources, hopefully, to help anyone who is struggling right now. So let's get into the topics. Okay. Uh, So what are the different types of eating disorders? So there's uh, several different types of eating disorders that are defined in the DSM. Um, I think, you know, with eating disorders, there's just lots of misperceptions. Um, So whenever I talk to people and say I'm an eating disorder specialist, I usually have people say, oh, yeah, I need to work on losing some weight. And it's like, "Mm, no, that's not what an eating disorder is. Um, So, you know, it's always important for people to remember that being overweight is not an eating disorder. Um, So the types of eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, and it can be restricting subtype or binge purge subtype. Um, There's also bulimia nervosa, and then we have binge eating disorder. Then we have what's called OSFED or other specified eating disorder, um, which can kind of tie in with where there's uh, some level of an eating disorder present, but it doesn't really fit into anorexia or bulimia or binge eating or one of those. And then we also have ARFIT, which, which is avoided restrictive food intake disorder. Um, ARFIT, we're starting to see, or at least I am, um, more in, say, the autistic population um, because uh, there's a lot of sensory integration issues and kind of very rigid Um, patterns of behaviors um, that can apply to food or eating. And so with the sensory integration piece, um, they can struggle with textures or smells or different things which can limit their food intake. And so their food intake is limited because of those sensory issues, but not necessarily because of body image or body dysmorphia or something of that nature. But they can still lose enough weight to where they have the, uh, the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. So really, the um, the difference with some of them being more so body image, and then uh, the other ones being more so uh, texture based and more of a sensory input um, kind of distress. Yeah, and it can also be, um, you know, for some people who have experienced some severe trauma in their life, in which uh, 
food might have been part of the trauma uh, or the abuse. Um, so then that can also be a part in uh, the behaviors or the restriction, not necessarily related to body image. Is there a lot of other disorders that kind of run hand in hand with it? I know you mentioned the autism and then yeah. uh, religious trauma as well. Yeah, so um, there is a lot of comorbidities. Um, so there can be trauma or PTSD um, related to uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse or whatever the case might be. Um, there's also uh, a lot of patients who have, well, there's kind of like four um, main areas that tie in with eating disorders or where you can see a comorbidity. So that's um, sometimes misdiagnosis of ADHD, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, depression and anxiety. So all four of those can present themselves in a person who's struggling with, especially with anorexia, who's really malnourished and not doing well in their brains, not functioning at a baseline level of functioning. Those uh, four types of diagnosis can also develop. So it's always really important to do a complete uh, history that looks back to see if there is attentional issues, depression, anxiety, or obsessive compulsive traits before the eating disorder started. Um, or is that more of a result of the eating disorder and will resolve with nutrition and getting the patient back to a healthy weight? So with uh, the overall uh, comorbidities, um, is it common or is it more common to have someone with just like an eating disorder? Is it more so on the other end? I, I've seen more where um, there's a comorbidity present. I, I've worked with very few that are just plain straightforward anorexia nervosa with no other mental health issues combined or tied into that. So looking at preventative measures, uh, we talked about the disorders. Um, are there ways to prevent eating disorders or at least kind of slow them down from developing yeah. in the long run? Yeah, so research has actually shown that the earlier we catch this, the better. So if we catch this around, and unfortunately, we're seeing more and more kids that are 9, 10, 11, um, who are starting to develop uh, eating disorders. And the earlier we catch that, the keep kind of, I think the way to think about it is, is there's this cyclical kind of pattern that happens where um, the person um, thinks, okay, I need to start taking care of myself, or I need to lose weight, or whatever their motivation is. It might be genuine. And, you know, a good reason um, they just want to be healthier, which we all want to do that. And that's fine. Um, but what happens is, is they do that. They lose some weight. It makes them feel better, kind of reduce some of their anxiety and all that. They get positive reinforcement from family and peers and, you know, other people like, oh, my gosh, how do you do that? I wish I could do that. And, you know, which probably isn't the best thing to say. But at the time, people, I mean, anybody who's getting healthy and doing better, we would say that to them and not think twice about it. Um, but I think that's where, um, you know, with the eating disorder, there's that genetic piece that we just don't know is, well, we know it's there, but in the moment, you don't know it's there mm -hmm. until it kind of plays out. Um, but so they get that reinforcement and then they start feeling better, but then they're like, okay, I feel crappy about myself again. I have this low self-esteem, low self-worth. I really don't, have a good sense of who I am, or I don't feel good about myself, whatever. And it's like, well, exercising, losing weight, eating healthier made me feel better. So I'll do that again. And I'll lose some more weight and that'll make me feel better. And it's kind of like this, it's chasing this, this uh, desire to 
get to a place where you're happy and feel better and you feel complete. But it just, uh, the more cycles you make of that, uh, the more kind of embeds the illness into the person. And then it becomes harder to kind of undo that. Um, so, you know, when we have patients who are in their 20s that are first being identified or even later, um, they're pretty rooted into the thinking and kind of the pathology. Um, and then because of the malnutrition, the brain isn't working the way it should. So um, parts of the brain are taken over and just really hyper-focusing on body image or numbers or calories or specific things because the brain is just honed in on one area and not looking at the big picture. And so it, it, it can become very, uh, very detrimental the longer it goes. So the, really the best uh, prevention is, is being able to recognize it and getting treatment as soon as possible. And that's our best bet. Absolutely. And you know, what you said is, is so true because when someone does start to lose weight in our society, you know, it's, it's a instant gratification versus, you know, if you start to gain weight, you know, you're not going to get that gratification right. and especially, um, you know, really catching it at an early part is hard because it, oftentimes it looks just like someone's losing weight and, you know, who are we to judge at that? But if we can catch it really soon, um, and see that it's getting a little bit too far but sometimes weight loss goes too far and and it can be tricky for parents because you know kids go through stages of you know like being picky or just wanting to eat certain things and that can be normal too mm -hmm. um and it's really hard to like identify okay when does it become abnormal when is it too much or gone too far um so it, it's not easy and you know i work with patients uh, down at Cincinnati Children's who were new onset diabetes and parents would be so upset and like, how did I not notice this? I should have noticed it was coming. They were wet in the bed. You know, they're doing this and this. And I was getting mad at them and yelling at them. And so I try to tell parents, you don't know what you don't know, you know, and you can't blame yourself. But now that you know what's going on, let's do what we need to do to make the most of it and to get things back on track. Absolutely. And, and really looking, um, you, know, you you mentioned talking about like picky eater, um, mm -hmm. you know, as a childhood, and I, I'm sure that plays into the ARFRID, um, especially mm -hmm. sometimes not realizing someone has an extensive history of, you know, having eating disorders if they're diagnosed later in life, and then realizing that they might have had something, a different type that transitioned. Right. Uh, so talking about uh, some treatment options, uh, let's say you have gone through the preventative stage, you know, you identified someone that has maybe some problems um, that look similar to an eating disorder. What are some treatment steps and options? Yeah. So, I mean, that obviously looks different from adolescents and kids to adults. Um, but the, the first line evidence-based treatment for uh, treating adolescents with an eating disorder is family-based therapy or the Maudsley approach, um, which <clears throat> some people may have heard of. I'm sure many people have. Um, there's also another approach called EFFT or emotionally focused family therapy, um, which has also shown a lot of great uh, results in working with families and helping parents with their own kind of emotional issues related to the diagnosis. Um, so I think for kids and families, trying to keep them in the home and helping the families learn how to create the structure in the home that we could create in, say, a partial hospitalization program or an inpatient program, um, then allows the patient to or the child to stay at home, still go to school, 
still live their life, go through their developmental appropriate milestones and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's really what's best for the kid. I think, you know, when, when they get really severe and there's no um, services on an outpatient basis with certified or, or trained professionals who understand eating disorders, um, you know, it's they're quick sometimes to say, okay, we need to send them somewhere uh, to get the treatment. And sometimes that can just make things more traumatic or more upsetting for the patient. Now, obviously, it's a spectrum. So there's some people who are so severe that it, you have to go to that extent. Um, but if we can keep them at home and in the home is probably the best bet. So that's why with the new program at Dayton Children's, we're really looking at doing just uh, intensive outpatient, traditional outpatient and medication management, as well as partial hospitalization so that they can stay in their home stay in their community, you know, stay in the region and not have to go off to another state. Um, but if needed, then that's, you know, what we would have to do. So I guess, you know, I kind of went on a tangent. The levels of care are just the outpatient, which is the best. And then intensive outpatient is really not a second step. Intensive outpatient is more of a step down from partial hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So if outpatient isn't working, we would probably go to partial hospitalization first and do uh, you know, six, eight week or whatever length of time is needed. And then they would step down the IOP or intensive outpatient where it's like three days a week for three hours at a time. And that is for kind of helping them transition back to an outpatient level of care. So those are the main ones that we're focused on. Um, there's also medical hospitalization. So if a child uh, becomes very emaciated, very sick, they might need a medical hospitalization first just because of the possibility of refeeding syndrome. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the research has shown that if we feed kids too fast or give them a carb load too fast, that that can actually kill them or make things worse. So we really have to have a medical admission so we can monitor their chemicals and their levels and all that kind of stuff, make sure things are okay. And then from the medical hospitalization, step them down to partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, and then outpatient. Um, <clears throat> the times that we would really look at using an acute psychiatric admission is when they become a danger to themselves. So when it gets to be where they're starting to have suicidality or have actually made an attempt, we're gonna be using the acute uh, psychiatric unit uh, for an admission. Or if their eating is so severe that uh, they need to be really monitored closely, then we would use that uh, situation as well. And then residential is kind of a, a last resort uh, for more chronic long-term cases where the patient has been dealing with this for years and years and years and really haven't had the opportunity to to stop the behaviors. And with a long-term placement, you have more interruption of the behaviors, which then can help set in healthier skills once they get out. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, for me, I would rather use that in more like last resort kind of cases or Definitely. situations. And, you know, really also um, going with the, the first approach, you know, of, of obviously keeping the children or even adults, you know, in, at home is the best option um, and seeing if you can manage it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of bumps along the road, you know, with, with um, different behaviors that come up. But um, 
Tell me a little bit more about the, the partial hospitalization. I know you described um, the other ones on like time frames. Yeah. But, uh, what what does that kind of look like? So uh, we just had approval at Dayton Children's to expand our program, and we're going to have a location where every aspect of our program is going to be housed in one location. So from outpatient all the way through PHP. Um, the way we're starting off though with our PHP program is, you know, as we build and grow, um, we're going to start off with uh, five days a week for like a six hour day. So like a traditional general PHP program. Um, but our goal is, is to get to a place where we're going to be doing seven days a week and doing extended days of 10 hours a day. Um, because what we find is, is that if we have that for patients, um, then we can actually have them in program for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and two of their snacks. And then if they needed a third snack, snack, they would eat that at home in the evening. But that way they can still, even though they're eating all their meals and it's an extended day, they're still going home at night. They're still able to spend time with family, do some activities that they might want to do in the evening with friends or other people. Um, but usually if they're at that level, um, they're probably struggling and not doing well. So we're you know, really encouraging parents to limit their activity. They, we don't want them going, you know, with the eating disorder patient, uh, they can, they can uh, let their eating disorder do a lot of thinking for them. And so, you know, patients will say, well, I just want to go to the mall with my friends. But then while they're at the mall, they probably put about four miles on walking. And they know that. And they know that they can burn off some calories and maybe lose some weight that way. And so we have to really kind of monitor, like, what is your motivation for doing the things that you do? Is it really about spending time with friends or is it about an opportunity to burn calories? You know, and, and you mentioned the, the burning calories and the, the extra walking. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a good time to kind of talk about maybe some of the behaviors um, that, you know, parents should look out for. Because oftentimes, you know, eating disorders don't come with a guidebook and yeah, well, you know, and then, you know, patients as well, but maybe the families don't know exactly what to look for because maybe it looks normal to them. Right. Like what are kind of some of the behaviors that might be a warning sign? I, Brandon, to be honest with you, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and there's still times where patients will do something new and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never, I've never seen that or I never even thought about that. Um, an example would be, um, you know, uh, especially around meal times, where a patient will say, okay, I, you know, I'll spread, and this was when I was working at Lindner Center of Hope, and um, we had the inpatient unit, and the patient would spread their peanut butter on their toes, but they would spread it and spread it and spread it, and there'd be like a microscopic film on the toast. And there'd be about a tablespoon or more peanut butter still on the knife, and they'd set the knife down, and they'd be like, okay, here we go. And like, no, all the peanut butter has to be on the toast. Because the thinking of the eating disorder is, is that's probably around this many calories that I can get out of ingesting or taking in. And so when they're inpatient or when they're really sick, we do all the, we'll put the peanut butter on the toast, or we'll do all the meal prep and everything. Um, just because the eating disorder is so good at finding ways of cutting calories. Um, there are th other examples, um, you know, with some families I had asked if they're, if they had a family pet and they would always have a dog and it's like, okay, has the dog gotten fatter recently? And they're like, well, yeah, he has put on weight. And it's like, okay, 
where does the dog typically sit? Well, they sit down by her all the time. You know, it's like, and you find these, like, the dog's being fed under the table, and it looks like the person, the uh, child is eating or the patient is eating, but they're really not. Um, there's just so many, I mean, I could go on and on about all these different examples of, you know, getting up to go get, you know, I'll go get more food because I'm hungry and they go out and they scrape it off, most of it off down the drain or into the garbage and then they get some more and then they spread it around to make it look like they've eaten and they're really not eating. So it, it's, and I think that's where the stereotype of the illness being manipulative and gaming comes into play. Um, because people see that and they're like, you're just, you know, messing with me playing it. And people get really upset and take it personally. And I have to remind parents, like, don't take this personally at all. This is the way the illness tries to stay alive is by finding ways to not take in calories or to gain weight. And so really trying to explain that to parents and helping them realize that this isn't a personal attack on you. This is just the illness playing out. And the more you can just be okay with understanding that and then responding in a very calm way and not a very emotional reactive way um, is better for the recovery process. And the the eating disorder loves for the house to be in total chaos. If the house is in chaos and everybody's upset and arguing and fighting all the time, then nobody's paying attention to how much is actually being consumed or not being consumed. And it usually goes downhill. I think that's really important too, you know, talking about um, the part of manipulative uh, and secrecy. Um, you know, oftentimes it happens a lot, but it's not necessarily um, necessarily the patient's main goal. It's, right. you know, I, I think that's a big uh, assumption that yeah. people might make that overall that it's, it's, you know, like you said, the illness trying to stay alive and oftentimes you're, so far gone at that point that you don't even know who you are anymore. Right. The malnutrition just, there's a part of the brain called the insula, which is like the switchboard of the brain that helps all the different parts of the brain communicate. And the theory is, is that insula kind of shuts down or goes offline when you're malnourished. And when that happens, then it's not helping the rest of the brain communicate with each other to create a bigger picture. And that's where you get a lot of this kind of like, um, real weird, like, oh my gosh, I look so fat and, you know, and they're not fat at all and those types of uh, things. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's really important to recognize that this isn't an attention seeking illness. Like, I, and that's another stereotype I think is very strong with this illness is that it's attention seeking and look at me and really these patients don't want to be seen at all. Um, they want to blend them in, into the background and be left alone. And so, in most cases, what we think as attention seeking or kind of vain or, you know, that kind of stuff is really more of embarrassment, shame, guilt, um, you know, disgust with the self. Um, and, and people just don't realize that that's what the patient's actually feeling and going through. Absolutely. So who is the most at risk uh, when we're talking about uh, individuals? Um, to get an eating disorder because oftentimes we hear this common stigma is that it's a female disorder especially when you look at anorexia and um you know there's so many disorders but in the same way it's not all one population exactly um you know what what we always preach is is that eating disorders can affect anybody and everybody and it's not just one certain population and it's not certain one certain culture 
Um, and so then, you know, when we talk about that, it's like, okay, well then how, how does it get to where it is or what, what becomes of it? Because if you think about our society, we're all exposed to the social media stuff that just bombards us day in and day out with, you have to look a certain way and you have to have this kind of skin texture and blah, blah, you know, on and on and on. Um, but not all of us develop an eating disorder. So yes, that is, that plays a huge part in eating disorders. Um, but it, it's not the cause of eating disorders. Um, so we know that there's also a psychological component to it. And so the temperament or the psychology of the individual, and I'll speak more towards the anorexia patient at this time, is kind of very uh, rigid, perfectionistic, um, people-pleasing, conflict-avoidant. Um, they just want to be the best that they can be, and anything less than the best is failure. Um, so lots of patients will, you know, come in crying at a session. I'll be like, what's wrong? And they're like, I failed my math test. And I'm like, oh, what did you get? And they'll say, oh, I got a 95. And I'm like, okay, that's not failure. Um, but for them, they didn't get 100%. So it's failure. Um, and so, but that's kind of how the, the illness also distorts the thinking of the brain to where it's very irrational in, in how it looks at the world. And the the other piece that's really interesting about too is is the patients can see this in other people so they can say other people look fine or they look healthy or they're a healthy weight or they can say you did great you still got an a they can be very supportive to everybody else but when it comes to them it doesn't apply um and so that creates some of that kind of um i think stereotype and some of that uh misunderstanding of the illness and why you know it's like oh you're just doing this for attention you know, or the other thing that you hear a lot of too for the anorexia patients is, is well, okay, if if the medicine is food and getting to a healthy weight is the goal and that's all you need to do and you'll get better, well, then just eat. And it's like, okay, well, if it was that simple, we wouldn't have all these programs and all this research to figure out why they can't eat, even though that's, a, you know, it's it's that simple, but it's that hard. I think that's a really good point when we, we look at just the and, and the medication is your food because I hear it so often. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've had an eating disorder and I think what it is, is, um, you know, our, our families get so frustrated over time just because anorexia and other just eating disorders are not short term things. You're right. not just going to recover from it in a year. It's right. not going to happen. But when it happens like that, we all get in the heat of the moment oh, yeah. we all just say just eat because right. it sounds so easy right but then again it's not because it's you know there's so much more to it and recovery isn't linear and, and you're not going to recover by just eating you also need um you know the therapy and then the all the other elements that come with that to right. recover effectively exactly and I, you know it's it's interesting too because <clears throat> the parents you know think okay we'll just eat and you know lots of times parents will be like okay well when are they gonna be better and i'll have to say to them i don't know and they're like well what do you mean you don't you know and then they get really frustrated because they're like you know we got we got to do this 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 and then things will be better and you know walter k out of um he used to be at the university of pittsburgh but then is now down at uh, university of california san diego and he did research that showed that even when you get a patient back to their healthy weight or within their healthy weight range, mm -hmm. that it can take anywhere from three months to two years for the brain to catch up with the body. Yeah. So I'm constantly have to remind parents of 
even if they're at their healthy weight, we have to stay kind of consistent and structured in our approach to treating them because we have to keep them at a healthy weight for a long enough period of time for the brain to recover so that it starts thinking more rationally and not so irrationally. And so that it's really just, it's a very frustrating illness because you just want to know, okay, what do I need to do and how do I solve it? Kind of like A plus B equals C. And in this, it's like, I feel like Yogi Berra saying, okay, it's not over until it's over. And they're like, what the hell does that even mean? You know, um, but they start to catch on as to what I'm trying to say and understanding it. And it requires a ton and ton of patience in realizing that the, the most important thing is just staying consistent and structured and, and just doing that until, you know, all of a sudden one day you're like, wow, things just seem so different. And that's kind of like, you know, when you know kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of this is when the family therapy comes in yes. in the treatment because there is so much uh, relationship problems that come with eating disorders. And, uh, you know, that, that therapy is not always, you know, an easy session. No, it's, it's probably the hardest session and uh, you know the the people who i always um and i don't this i don't mean this bad but the people who i tend to always have the most difficult time working with are the dads because dads and being a man being a man and a dad myself you know it's like okay what's the problem how do we fix it do it done move on you know it's kind of like it's very linear and so explaining to dads that you know okay this isn't linear and I know that you're probably mad and angry and frustrated because you know what to do to fix it, but that doesn't work. And so then you feel like, I don't know what to do. And so a lot of times dads can feel very hopeless and helpless. And it'll just be like, I don't even know what to do. I'm, I'm out, you know, and they kind of check out and really having to keep them invested and in reminding them that this isn't about, um, you know, them trying to make you miserable or be disobedient or cause you stress and all that kind of stuff. It's really about their illness. And the more you can be supportive of them and understand what they're going through and not really, okay, I shouldn't say that, not even understanding, but just being willing to listen and try to understand. Because the reality is, is I've never had an eating disorder. So for me to work with my patients and say, oh yeah, I totally get what you're saying. That's crazy. There's there's no way I can ever, ever understand what it feels like or how the struggle it is or how painful it is. So I'm never going to say that I understand because I don't. There's just no way. Yeah, and, and I, I like what you said about the, the dad piece being very hard to work with because men's mental health in general is very hard to navigate. And, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to bridge into men with eating disorders. Um, we've talked a lot about females. We've talked yeah. about, you know, having anorexia as one of them. But what do you kind of see when it comes to men? I know a lot don't get treatment, but in the same way, is there uh, a trends that you see or anything along those lines? I mean, I would, I mean, the research has shown that there's probably millions of men out there struggling with this and having problems with an eating disorder. But because of the stereotype of it being a female disease, there's like embarrassment and shame that go along with it for a lot of men to seek out treatment. And so, um, you know, I, th I think that we don't see nearly the numbers that we should see or that are out there. Um, I don't really see a whole lot of um, men that come through the program. Um, where I 
see um, some men coming through the program is um, if they're identifying more as female and they want to look uh, more female and so they don't want to bulk up they don't want to get big so they try to eat less to stay very uh teat and kind of emaciated uh, because it has more of a feminine look to it um, and then vice versa i've had some uh, young women who are uh, identifying with being a male and they want to restrict and lose weight because to get rid of their you know, chest and to not have butts and hips and all that kind of stuff to kind of go along with, um, you know, just the genetic or the biological appropriateness of, you know, going through puberty, um, all that stuff starts to change and that can be very tough for them. So um, one of the things I do see uh, often, and I see it more in older men than in uh, adolescents, is when... <clears throat> they're really working on like bulking up and being healthy and eating well and all that kind of stuff. And so I, there's not an official diagnosis, but in the eating disorder community, we use the word orthorexia, you know, where it starts off trying to be just healthy and eat healthy and be clean and you're eating all that kind of stuff, but it goes to an extreme. And then, you know, it's like, well, that's not healthy. So I'm eliminating that food. And all of a sudden you have these good food and bad foods and the good foods are maybe like four things you know and the bad foods are everything else and so that really creates the opportunity for weight loss and for you know becoming more malnourished and that affects the brain and then kind of throws it into a full-blown anorexia neurosa um, so it kind of starts off as that orthorexia neurosa at first <clears throat> and so i think there's a lot of men out there who are experiencing that but then just don't seek treatment what do you think um, about the modern day culture with weightlifting? Uh, a lot of social media. I know um, back in 2018 when I was in my running addiction and um, anorexia, that I was my algorithm on social media was very attached. You know, oh, every yeah. other video was you know someone weightlifting. They knew what you were looking at. Yeah. They, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what do you do? You think a lot of um, a lot of men that are getting in these trends are, are getting trapped in eating disorders long-term or have the risk at least. Yeah, I think um, I think they're getting trapped in it long-term and then just nobody, because people have the stereotype of it being a female, nobody really identifies that it's a problem for these men. And so they're kind of just suffering in silence and you know they're not gonna talk about it. And that ties back into kind of what we were talking about before with dads in that, you know, you and I, when we were raised, you know, it was like, okay, you're a boy and boys do this and boys act like this. And the feelings that boys have are um, anger, pissed off, angry, maybe happy. And you don't show sad, fear, anxiety, you know, embarrassment. You, you hide all those other feelings. And so that's also what makes it hard too with, uh, with working with adolescents is saying, look, your dad's really not mad at you. He's scared, but it just looks like anger because we were taught that that's how we show our feelings and emotions is through anger. Um, and so helping clear, helping create that clarity of, the, of what we perceive and what we think is, oh, dad hates me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. It's like, no, he probably cares about you so much that he doesn't know what to do. And so he just gets pissed off because he doesn't know. He, he's not going to sit there and just start crying because he doesn't know what to do. Um, and so that all kind of ties in with men who are struggling with eating disorders seeking help because it's like, I got this. 
you know, I'm a man, I should be able to handle this. I can do it on my own. I don't need nobody's help. I don't need no therapy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's what really gets them into trouble. Um, and then for some, for some men, you know, with all, with this patient population, I mean, the, I always say the opposite of dysfunctional is dysfunctional. You know, lots, everybody will answer, well, it's functional. It's like, no, if you go from one extreme to the other extreme, you're still in a state of dysfunction. Um, really the functional or the normal, whatever that is, is finding that balance in the middle somewhere and it can kind of lean to one side or the other. But I think what with, with men, what happens is, is they either become very restrictive in their eating and uh, exercise a lot, which takes them to a really low weight, or they want to look like, you know, these little action figures that the biceps look like pyramids. And it's like, okay, there's only one bicep. It's never going to look like a pyramid. Um, but they have this kind of image in their head of, I can make myself cut and rip. And so then they'll eat tons of protein and they'll really try to bulk up and get really, really big, which can be just as damaging for the body. And, and we're seeing more and more, you know, there's like bodybuilders losing their life because of heart attacks and all kinds of things uh, that they're doing to their body to try to achieve that, that huge look. Absolutely. And it, it's one of those things with it's an obsession that comes yeah. on and, you know, you get so trapped in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about the, the men's emotions and, you know, what they feel. And it's a very interesting part, too, because when you go into treatment for eating disorder, it's so embedded in our heads that you feel so alone in the treatment center. Because I remember when I was in uh, the treatment center I was at, there was like, two guys including me and then all females and it's like i wasn't supposed to show my emotions i didn't want to feel it i felt weak you know and it's, right. it's all those things and that's one of the barriers that comes to yep. guys getting treatment is that are afraid to feel what they're feeling and showing your feelings and all that kind of stuff is not quote-unquote masculine mm -hmm. you know and if you're around a bunch of girls it's like i don't want to look like a wuss you know and that yep. kind of, it, it's really kind of sad how our society kind of pre-programs us to think and feel a certain way that really interferes with just our long-term health and being okay with who we are as people absolutely so i want to we've talked about some common misperception uh, misconceptions mm -hmm. um what recommendations do you have for parents with uh, eating disorders? You've talked a little bit about it. Um, what are some of the recommendations when they start to see symptoms like pop up? Yeah, I, they're in that hard spot. I mean, the very first thing that they should do is if they're starting to see things, or they're at least, even if they are not one hundred percent certain, nothing. There's not going to be anything wrong, or nothing's going to be hurt or lost by just going in and getting an assessment. Go into a professional, have them do a full assessment, get a feel for where they're at. Are they kind of on a normal trajectory? Are they doing okay? Is there some eating disorder influences and behaviors that um, are concerning? And so, you know, I would really just encourage parents, don't be ashamed or embarrassed. And I think that's part of uh, the problem with eating disorders as well is, is that if you have a child who has an eating disorder, whether it be anorexia, bulimia, anything else, somehow we think or we associate, well, then people are going to think I'm a bad parent or how do you not know how to feed your kid? You know, and it's not, it's not that at all, but that, that fear and anxiety and stigma that go along with it um, will often make parents sometimes avoid reaching out or looking for help because they just don't want to, they don't want to be perceived as a bad parent. And so I'm constantly trying to tell them that they're not bad parents, obviously. 
and reminding them about a few other things. So like some of the things I had written down um, for families to remember is eating disorders are not a choice. Structured meals are very important in sitting with the patient through the meal, making sure that none of that gaminess is going on with like feeding the dog or, you know, whatever the case might be. Uh, remember, uh, no food is good and no food is bad. So, I mean, if it's edible, it's, you know, we will say, and you probably heard this, we'll say all food fits. And it's like, okay, yeah, all food fits. Now, I will also be realistic with patients too and say, okay, all food fits, but should you eat a large blizzard every day for, you know, three months? Probably not. You know, that might not be the best idea. I think that's also something to talk about too, because, um, you know, when, when you look at the refeeding process, mm -hmm. it's not about eating, you know, blizzards every single day, right. you know, anything that's going to, you know, because I think some people might think, well, you have to gain weight. Well, then what are you eating? Are you eating? You know, I remember when I went to treatment, it was, um, you know, six meals, I mean, three meals a day and three snacks. Right. I, was, I was in residential and it was very thought out. I mean, everything is made with a dietitian. You know, yep. it's, it's, it's all different parts of what needs to be eaten to do it in a healthy way. So right. that's, you know, that's a very important piece. Yeah. And I think what people need to remember, too, is, is that, um, you know, healthy, healthy is found in fats. Healthy is found in carbs. Healthy is found in proteins. Healthy is found in everything. And it gets back to that kind of the opposite of dysfunctional is dysfunctional, where it's about finding balance. And, you know, you need all of those things, but do you need all of one or all of another? No. You know, that then that becomes extreme and irrational. And that's kind of what the eating disorder does. So we're trying to really promote this balance of you can eat anything, um, but you don't want to eat too much of this or you don't want to eat. I mean, eating too much protein is not good for you. You know, if you just eat steak all the time, that's not good for you. Um, you know, if you eat just vegetables, that can be you know problematic. Now, I'm sure there's probably some vegetarians and vegans out there who would be screaming at me like, you can live that way. OK, but you have to be really careful about how you meal plan when you're either vegetarian or vegan to make sure you're getting enough proteins from other sources, um, because you still need the protein, even if you get it from a plant-based you know um so there's just a lot of uh, there's just so many variables that play a part in in the whole process um you know i'll tell a patient there's times where you know when i was a kid i used to love twinkies do i eat twinkies anymore no and then i if i want to eat one can i yeah because it brings back maybe good memories of childhood or you know that kind of thing um now when i eat them i'm probably like Oh, how, how did I like this? <laughs> this is not that good. Um, but it, it's not going to hurt me if I do that, you know, and, and I think that's what, and then people have to also understand, you know, for child and adolescence, so from say age 10 to 25, they're still in a state of development and the brain's not fully developed until like age 24, 25. And so if you're restricting your nutritional value, it's going to affect your brain and how much it develops or how, you know, how much that frontal lobe develops into being more, you know, a, a better executive functioning for the body and saying, eh, this probably isn't a good idea. Let's not do that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but and so with that development going on, kids and adolescents need more fats. They need more of certain things because they need it for their development. Um, and that gets kind of lost too of like, well, they need to eat healthy. And it's like, well, okay, eating all these fats is healthy. It's not bad for them. Now, if you're 60, yeah, I don't want to eat that many fats. 
Um, so just having an understanding of that and being open to that, everybody's dietary needs are going to be different. Absolutely. Now, so we, we've talked about behaviors and the, the warning signs uh, with eating disorders. Um, what are some of the risks that come with eating disorders, especially being that they don't, not everyone recovers quickly. Um, so long-term risks. So the like six top things that occur for uh, patients, say with anorexia, is um, amenorrhea for females and loss of their menstrual cycle, um, bradycardia, so very low heart rate, um, which if a heart rate gets down into the 40s during the daytime, then that means at night while you're sleeping, it can be dropping down into the 30s and 20s. And then that puts you at risk of your heart maybe to stop and, and not functioning because it's so low. Um, so there's bradycardia, there's the amenorrhea, there's also constipation that goes along with uh, this, which can cause a lot of problems with blockage in the system, which then does make it hard to eat because if you're all backed up, you know, where where's more going to go in? Um, and so that's one of the struggles that we have with patients who are really medically compromised, um, that sometimes we might need to clean them out um, just so that they can start eating again uh, because they'll have that. Or, you know, it could be abscesses in their intestines um, that's blocking food from getting through, whatever the case might be. So there's there's lots of different things. There's also uh, hypotension, or not hypotension, sorry. Uh, there's orthostatic, so where their blood pressure will uh, drop. Um, like if they're laying down, it'll be at one rate, and if they stand up, it can drop significantly. And then you'll see a spike in the heart rate. So like their heart might be 50 when they're laying down, then they stand up and it's 120 or 110 or something like that. And basically what's happening is, is because the blood pressure is often not working the way it should, the heart has to work really, really hard to keep blood up in their brain to keep them from passing or blacking out. Um, so there's there's those kinds of things that can happen that are all reversible. You know, all those things can be fixed and taken care of. We can bring back a young girl's menstrual cycle. We can improve the heart rate with nutrition. We can improve the orthostasis and the constipation, all that stuff with, you know, uh, nutrition. Uh, the other one is just um, kind of like a constant sense of cold. And, you know, if you're at a really low weight, you don't have the body fat to to provide insulation for your body as needed. So you can have this real strong cold intolerance. Um, but all that stuff can be replaced or fixed or brought back to normal. The only thing that can't be brought back is bone density loss. So the, the amount of bone density loss that happens during malnutrition can be very significant. And sometimes if a patient's been struggling with this for a long time, we'll do bone density scans just to see how far along it is or if it's how, or if it's you know a problem yet or not. So we'll find you know osteopenia or osteoporosis in some of these patients. And the problem with that is is that even if we get them back to a nutrition appropriate nutrition, and we put them on calcium supplements and all that kind of stuff, the bone density that they lost during the period of time where they were malnourished can't be regenerated. It can't be replaced. And so like for our female and our male athletes who um, uh, you know, are runners or stuff like that, we find that they have, that they can develop a long history of like uh, hairline fractures and breaks and all that kind of stuff because their bones just can't hold up to the, the pounding of, you know, running cross country or marathons or stuff like that. Now, we, we talked about the risks. Um, 
you did mention sports and I think that's a big uh, topic right there because um, there's so many that develop exercise addictions or they have you know very unhealthy patterns when they do exercise uh, especially when you look at restriction and then even fluid restriction too you know those two put together can definitely uh, make yes. it very dangerous for athletes. Yes, definitely. And, you know, so for the female, we can see the, it's called the female athlete triad, where you get a female athlete who's eating appropriately and, but is really exercising, uh, especially like track, cross country, uh, those types of things. Um, swimming is another one as well, um, where, you wouldn't think they have an eating disorder because they're eating, but because of the demand they're putting on their body through their workout routine and that, what they're eating is not nearly enough for what their body needs. You know, so you look at people like Michael Phelps and some of these like high end athletes and Michael Phelps, I think he's like 13,000 calories a day when he's in training, which I can't even fathom, mm -hmm. but his body needs that. And if you look at his body, you wouldn't think he's eating that much, you know? Um, but I think what happens for the female athletes is that they need more like that. But if they eat like that, then they're worried about how people are going to perceive them and how they're going to look at them if they're eating that much food, um, which then gets in the way. Um, for males, you know, I think wrestling is a very, can be a, not is, can be a very potentially, potentially a very dangerous uh, sport just because, um, you know, so often kids want to lose weight to go down a weight class and think, well, if I can lose weight and go down a weight class, I'll be bigger and stronger than the kids in that weight class. Um, but the problem is, is they might do really well the first period and then the rest of the match, they're dead because they don't have any energy or, expended, you know, they've used up all their energy. Um so wrestling's the big one, I think, for, for males. Um, but you can also see it in cross-country and track uh, as well. Now, with social media being so present mm -hmm. in this day and age, um, do you see a lot of uh, the dangerous trends uh, in terms of food, um, especially attached to weightlifting, this one we mentioned? Do you see a lot of uh, cases coming in where there's a lot of like resemblance of maybe some unhealthy habits from from like they find it online because they think well i'll try it out yeah yeah i there's social media and just the internet is it's it's great in a lot of ways but it is so dangerous in a lot of ways because uh, a lot of my patients can go to the internet and find better ways to be a better anorexia patient um, and there's even websites out there that support anorexia and encourage the behavior and will say, hey, try doing this or do this. And, you know, so you have patients who might, you know, drink a combination of like uh, apple cider and mustard and, you know, in hot water because that somehow burns off, you know, whatever it is. Um, I don't know if that's actually one, um, but there's lots of things out there. Um, there's one time where um, kids were, uh, and adults were uh, eating uh, cotton balls. And because cotton balls don't break down or dissolve, so then that would fill up the stomach and take up a lot of room. So then they couldn't eat as much, which would then help them lose weight was the kind of thinking. But the problem is, is that if those cotton balls like passed through and went down the intestinal tract, they could get clogged or impacted and then could cause abscesses, which could actually kill the patient 
Um, so, you know, and just in terms of medical complications from, for like the bulimia nervosa patient, um, you know, the excessive throwing up can cause the potassium level to drop. If that potassium level drops too low, they can have seizures and die from that, or they can have obstructions in their GI system and cause abscesses, and then they can become septic and die from that. So, you know, people don't realize just how severe, I mean, eating disorders are the number one cause of death amongst mental health issues. And I think just past two years, opioid addiction kind of overtook that and is the number one and eating disorders is number two. But the, we know in the world that, or in the country, that there's one person dying from an eating disorder every 55 minutes. And nobody nobody talks about that. Nobody knows about that or hears about that. Um, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of people. And I think um, part of the problem is, is because of the, the stigma that goes with eating disorders, that even people who have recovered, they don't want to let people know they struggled with it because of the stereotypes that go with it and the lack of understanding. But my the, the struggle that I have is like, okay, I understand why you don't want to talk about this because nobody is going to get it or understand and it gets frustrating because I get frustrated trying to explain things to people. But if we don't talk about this more, then it's just going to continue to be a problem. And you know, I try to tell patients, don't be ashamed of developing an illness. This is an illness. This isn't a choice. And it's okay to tell people, yeah, I've struggled with this and this is what I've dealt with and this is what I've lived with. Um, but it is hard when people are asked questions that, you know, you're sitting there as a patient and they ask a question, you're like, that's the stupidest thing, I've ever heard. you know, and so you don't really want to talk about it because people just don't get it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, eating disorders are very shameful, you mm-hmm. know, when we look at patients and um, attached, a lot of their behaviors, you know, that consequence of yeah. fame that follows them for the rest of the day and even longer. But, um, you know, I, I do want to go back to, uh, you mentioned on the internet searches, and mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, we talked earlier about uh, recommendation for parents. I think it's a huge um, thing to look through your children's, yeah. you know, browser history, because I remember when I was in the, the very peak of my disorder, I would spend hours a day online just searching, trying to find a better, you know, better weight loss thing for it. And, and it's something that, if you can keep tabs on it a little bit, you know, it's, it's obviously kids are sneaky, but in the same way, it's something to look out for. Yeah. I mean, parents can't 100% control. It. Yeah. I mean, no. let's, let's be honest. Um, so I'm not asking parents to do that, but I think just being aware of where they could be getting information and how they're getting information. Um, and, you know, sometimes parents get really upset when I talk about like things that their child hasn't heard of yet. And they're like, don't give her any ideas or don't give him any ideas. And it's like, look, they probably already know. And if I let them know that I know and I'm going to be looking for all this stuff, then they know that they can't pull a fast one over on me. Or at least the eating disorder knows it can't pull a fast one over on me. And so, yeah, it really helping parents understand that they're going to know this stuff. They're going to figure this stuff out. But the more you know and the more you understand and do some of the research yourself because then you can find all kinds of ways that the eating disorder will, you know, find a way to survive. And that's going to help you in the long run because then you know what's going on. Um, but yeah, I think parents, you know, anytime you can block social media, um, that's, 
great, um, you know, as much as possible. Absolutely. Um, so what are some of the uh, resources that you could uh, recommend for um, individuals with eating disorders and their parents as well in that case? Yeah. Um, you know, there's websites out there like uh, NIDA has a website out there with uh, eating support, uh, eating resource, eating disorder resources and support. Um, the AED or the American Academy for Eating Disorders, uh, they have a good uh, website and like they have stuff listed on their website about like nine truths about eating disorders. You know, and so they just have basically nine things. The eating disorder field historically developed through a female centric lens and kind of how we don't have enough attention focused on males and their eating disorders. Boys and men with eating disorders remain underrecognized and underserved. Eating disorders can, uh, but not necessarily present differently in boys and men. Uh, medical complications of eating disorders in boys and men can be severe and or mortality is elevated. Um, seeking treatment for an eating disorder can be especially challenging uh, for boys and men. Boys and men can face additional eating disorder treatment barriers. So they have like all these things that kind of help break down some of the stigmas and the stereotypes. They also have... Uh, like for kids in at school and even parents, uh, what's called a scoff. And it's just this like six question error. And if a patient answers yes, or if a person answers yes to two or more, then they probably should go see somebody for an assessment. Um, you know, so little things like that, that can be really helpful for uh, patients and families. Um, another a good one is uh, there's a website out there for, called Motsley Parents. Um, that is a support network for parents in helping their child recover from an eating disorder, um, which can be very beneficial in getting ideas of how to, to battle this or how to fight this. And sometimes parents just need somebody to say, look, you're doing a great job. You're doing fine. Just keep doing what you're doing because they're, they're constantly questioning, am I just making things worse or am I screwing things up? Um, so I think having that constant reassurance that you're doing a good job and it's just the illness it's not you absolutely especially the one on parents is you know it, it, there's a lot that has to do with you know patients with eating disorders but um it's a whole family mm -hmm. thing and then really you need support all the way around because yeah. it is a lot to deal with you know because it's a lot of um arguments sometimes and yeah. uh, just back and forth but yeah. if you can get that support that's what, that, that's what matters one how parents do too like social media if you ask this friend and they absolutely lose their mind and freak out then probably they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing so you know a parent will sometimes say well i don't want to like stir things up or make them mad and it's like look if you stir things up or make them mad it's probably because you're hitting on something that you need to hit on and that you need to address and take care of or else it's just going to get worse um so you have it, it's it's sad because you have to almost be okay with the idea of things being chaotic and kind of confrontational all the time um which I don't know if any parent who's like, okay, I'm really going to enjoy this, you know, and, and I'll tell parents, I'll say, okay, look, if, if you go home after our appointments and everything seems great and everybody's happy and, you know, hugging each other and saying goodbye in the morning, you're, you're screwing up, you're doing something wrong. And, you know, and they're like, what? I'm like, okay, we're kind of told 
in our society that if you're a good parent, your kids love each other and they do everything they're supposed to do and they're real obedient, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's not real. I mean, that's just not realistic. And so I'll say if you go home and you're really fighting the eating disorder and you're doing all the things that we're recommending, it's going to feel like you're on the brink of hell, you know, and they're like, well, that doesn't sound like fun. I'm like, no, it's not fun and it's not enjoyable. But if it's really chaotic and you're really having to fight like that, you're probably doing a good job and you're probably addressing the illness. And that's why you're getting that pushback. Yeah, you're, you're, you're hitting those points and that they really don't want to talk about. But sometimes talking is the best way of getting around the problem. Yeah. So, Or at least acknowledging you know what's going on. You might not understand it, but you know what's going on. Exactly. Uh, so you brought some statistics with you today. Yeah. Uh, can you go over some of those for me? This, um, so I just pulled this up since we're in Ohio. Um, so the Academy for Eating Disorders, or AED, and I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Harvard. Uh, yeah, that was a stipend through Harvard. Uh, did the study for just prevalence and mortality in the state of Ohio for uh, people in uh, in the state of Ohio and the cost to the economy and society in Ohio from eating disorders. And I thought this was just fascinating that uh, it was pointing out that 9% of Buckeyes or Ohio, people who live in the state of Ohio, so about 1,029,000 will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. Um, of that 10,200 deaths per year nationally as a direct result of eating disorders, and that gets back to that statistic of about one every 52 minutes, a person's dying nationally from an eating disorder. Um, Eating disorders affect everyone, so all ages, starting as young as age five and as old as age 80. Um, when I was working at Linder Center and I was working with adults, I was working with some women who were 6'5", 70, who never got treatment their whole life. And so it was a constant battle of trying to to try to change that thinking or, or that thought process, which after that long of a period of time is really hard to do. Um, but it affects all races. So you know, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, Hispanic, um, South Pacific, Islander, whatever. Um, anybody can develop an eating disorder. And all genders are obviously affected with females being two times more likely to develop an eating disorder. But even with that, we still are predicting that there's probably about 10 million men out there with eating disorders that aren't getting treatment. And that's nationally. Um, so cost to the economy. So yearly economic cost uh, for the treatment of eating disorders is $2.3 billion for the state of Ohio. Um, additional loss of well-being per year is about $11.7 billion. Um, cost breakdown, so productivity losses is about $1.7 billion. Informal care is $239.4 million. Um, efficiency losses, uh, $171.5 million. Health system cost $164.4 million. So, I mean, those are incredible numbers in terms of, you know, if a patient's really sick and they're hospitalized multiple times or they need long-term care at a residential facility or uh, time missed from work. And, you know, it just, it, it adds up pretty quick. So the cost to the hospital system. So there's about 1,926 ER visits um, every year. Uh, in the state of just in the state of Ohio for eating disorders that cost about one million dollars. Uh, there's 841 inpatient hospitalizations um, costing about seven point five million dollars. 
um, and then loss per group. So the individual and the family experiences about $839.6 million loss because um, of that money going into care. Uh, government losses are 632.4 million. Uh, employee employers, 582.4 million and society in general is 253.7 million. So these are like incredible numbers. And when we look at this, it's like, okay, how many programs do we have in the state to really address this issue? In programs that are you know, certified eating disorder specialty programs, there's not hardly any out there. Would you really say important. more common? It's more common to uh, have to go to a different state for for treatment uh, when you look at uh, like over like yeah you know, residential yeah. like long term stay. So, so I started you know 15 years ago when I started in the eating disorder um, community or doing eating disorder work. I started at uh, the Linder Center of Hope, and they developed an eating disorder program there for adults and adolescents. And that was really like the first program next to adolescent medicine at Cincinnati Children's uh, to address um, eating disorder issues. Now, when we started, we didn't have anywhere to send kids in, uh, outside of our own program. Um, I would see lots of kids from as far away as Lima um, because there's nothing on the, the western side of the state who would drive all the way down to the Lender Center to get treatment. Um, I've had, when I was at Leonard Center, there'd be people who come from Columbus, Indiana, which is about a two hour drive, um, because there's just not the resources. Now, since then, there's been a lot more programs that have been developing. So there's, um, there's, uh, Cincinnati Children's who had, uh, an eating disorder program, uh, with adolescent medicine. Um, there's also uh, Eating Recovery Center who has a partial hospitalization program in Cincinnati uh, for eating disorders. And it was predominantly adults, but I think they're starting to open up to kids again. Um, there's also Aster Springs, uh, which developed a program um, out in like the Mason area. Um, I think also uh, some of the other programs such as like uh, Beckett Ridge or some of those places are trying to develop programs. And so I think there's more recognition that there's a need, um, but I think we're still really far behind on, um, okay, here's the need, what's the best approach and how do we really uh, affect change um, to help these families? And I think, you know, if you're working in the the adult world, you know, you have patients who have probably been dealing with this for a really long time. So it's not, it's definitely not going to be a quick fix. Um, you have a better chance of it being quick the younger you catch it, um, but it's still going to take time like we've talked about. Um, so I think in terms of like partial hospitalization, um, IOP, um, I think there's care in the state that they uh, can receive that uh, care. Um, there's also the Emily program out of Columbus in Cleveland. Um, the Children's Hospital up in Columbus has a program uh, nationwide. So there, there's programs out there, but I think um, a lot of times it, it results in um, you know, them going out of state to get the more intensive residential long-term care, um, which, you know, it's like, well, we're saying that it would be better to keep them at home, but then we're not really... I think we're working at trying to do that. Um, and that's why Dayton Children's recognize this need um, 
because there's just so many kids that were going unserved and really needed to find a way to get them the services that they needed. And so that's why they brought myself and Dr. Hauser in to, to develop a program there. Um, the, the only other thing that I would say that I would like to see down the road um, is a program that I developed um, and I called it proximity program. And basically it's an in-home service where therapists will actually go out to the patient's home and eat dinner with the family. And what I find, what I found was, is that you get to see the family in their own environment, which looks totally different than what they look like when they come in for an outpatient therapy session. Uh, you know, it, when you come in for an outpatient therapy session, it's very, it's a controlled environment. It's very bland. You know, they're going to bring whatever they want to bring to the session and maybe not talk about some things like we're not talking about that. That was so embarrassing, you know, um, but that's the kind of stuff that needs to probably be talked about and addressed. And so this in-home program where, you know, therapists will go out two to three times a week and work with not only the family in the home, but then also go out to the schools and work with the schools to help them better understand how to monitor and watch uh, patients who are eating lunch at school, stuff like that. Um, I think that's where the, the future work needs to happen is having more of that in-home presence because then you can really see what's going on and really address some of the issues that need to be addressed. I think so. Uh, you know, because right now, even with uh, all the treatment uh, there is, which, you know, right now isn't enough, but it's, it's a work in progress. Right. That type of service would be so much better because, you know, the, the uncontrolled environment is, is so much more important. A lot more things go on at home when yeah. you have an eating disorder because you have the sometimes the upper hand at that case. And I know even looking at recovery, it's so hard to uh, get into recovery because of the lack of like support. And I just want to say that, you know, eating lunch, breakfast, dinner, you know, those are oftentimes the hardest part when you look at the recovery, you know, along with all the other parts that come with it, but not having the support like you did in treatment and, even seeing something like, you know, mealtime supports more often in person because they have some online, you know, that you can join in, but it's, it's just not the same. It's not the same. Not the same. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where we can also look to is expanding like case management services mm -hmm. where we can have somebody who has more opportunity to drive out and, you know, say, hey, let's go out to dinner at this place today. And which for an eating disorder patient could be a huge trigger to go to a brand new restaurant and have to pick something off the menu and all that kind of stuff. But that's kind of the practice that is needed to get better at their recovery, but there's just not the resources to, to do that with them and, and to create that kind of atmosphere. So a lot of it is, is us trying to teach parents to do that at home and kind of create many professionals who are experts in eating disorders and the parents to do that stuff at home. That's difficult for parents though. If you're a single parent in a, a home, that's going to be really hard because you have to work. You have to do all this other stuff. If you have multiple kids in the home, you got to be able to pay attention to them too. And so it, it becomes difficult for even the parents to provide that kind of structure sometimes. Absolutely. And, you know, even sometimes a neutral party coming in, you know, can do a lot more progress than a family member that, you know, has a conflict with the person every single day about right. food and right. whether or not they are avoiding food or not, you know, so. When in, in that recovery process, you know, if you're eating every two to three hours, which is what 
kind of the recovery processes, you know, the breakfast snack, lunch snack, dinner snack. You eat your first meal and then you're already thinking about your snack and then you eat your snack and you're like, oh my gosh, lunch is coming. And so it never, ever ends. There's always food coming. The only time that there's some level of relief for the patient is the evening snack because then they have until the next morning, but then they're still thinking, oh my gosh, I got breakfast the next morning. So it, it, it's kind of a continue, you know, it'd be like telling an alcoholic, you can go to the bar once a day and have one shot and then you have to go home and then you don't drink anymore. You know, that's not going to happen. But the, the struggle that our patients are having with eating food, they have to engage in that time after time after time after time. And that's, that's really hard when that's their biggest source of anxiety and fear. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a lot all at once and a lot that, you know, you have to deal with. And, and, and then also think of the, the health, you know, I mean, health declines that are coming with your, your eating disorder along the way. Right. Uh, so what about when we have a, um, uh, in this example, a child uh, needing a consulting appointment? So what do you want parents to do in the meantime before you can even get into the appointment? Because oftentimes, you know, you're not going to get right in with a provider. Right. Yeah, I, I think um, the one thing that parents can do that can be helpful for them just to get kind of a foundational understanding is... Uh, Daniel LaGrange and James Locke uh, did a book called Helping Your Adolescent Beat an Eating Disorder or Helping Your Teenager, one of the two. Um, that's for parents and really helps kind of establish an understanding of the eating disorder and how to start changing the, the feeding patterns and, you know, monitoring meals and all that kind of stuff, which can be helpful for parents until they get in somewhere. Now, if it's a parent situation where they're like, well, I don't know if they have an eating disorder yet or not, you know, it can be a long wait, unfortunately, because there's just there's more need than there are people to provide it. Um, I think you have to be careful too about you know who you pick for uh, a therapist or a doctor to to um, to see the patient because lots of people will just you know add in eating disorder as something that they do, but don't really have an understanding of the evidence based treatment behind how to treat an eating disorder and what to do. You know, there's some therapists out there who will start seeing patients who are pretty sick and they're not even doing weights on them and they're not doing blood pressures. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of scary because they could be really decompensating and you're not seeing it. You know, or if we're with the bulimia patients where on the outside they look fine, but their insides can be totally a wreck because of either excessive laxative abuse or excessive uh, self-induced vomiting. Um, you know, they need lab work done. And so there should be lab work done. So, you know, I think um, try to get in anywhere as soon as possible or as fast as possible, but then also make sure that you look and see, are these certified eating disorder specialists? Are these people connected to the eating disorder community um, in terms of this being their specialty? Because um, that's going to be you might get be able to get into somebody really fast who doesn't really know what they're doing, and that's could just make things worse. Um, so you just have to do your research and do your homework and really figure out like what would be the best place. Absolutely, and also really making sure that the patient is you know having productive sessions too. Sometimes 
you can't really connect with someone until you find the right one. What? Which is always hard. Yeah, and I'll tell parents that all the time, even when they come in to see me, is, look, if this isn't a good fit, there's no, like, there's no shame, embarrassment, guilt, or anger, or anything. If it if it's not working, it's not working. It's okay. We gotta find somebody that works for you. I'm not gonna work for everybody, but the way I approach, the way I do therapy and stuff like that, some people will get it and be good with it, and other people will be like, eh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't drive with it, you know, or whatever. And I have to be honest too that like if there's a patient who I'm like, okay, I don't know if I can really help you the way I want to or the way I need to, then we need to have that open conversation, and it's not about um, I don't like you or you don't like me or it's just what's best for the child. That's all that really matters. And I think that's a really good point that we need to uh, look at. Um, the example you gave about you know, not doing all the, the steps needed, like the weights, the vitals and all that, because if the patient becomes too much for a clinician, you know, it's it's okay to, you know, be open and not just keep the patient because right. you think that you can help them, but right. medically they're not stable. Right. So what are the three components of eating disorders, and um, could you talk about them a little bit? Yeah, so I've kind of already touched over this a little bit in terms of the psychosocial, you know, society type uh, issues, and then the temperament of the individual being this kind of very rigid and, uh, you know, very structured perfectionistic. And so, you know, there's all of us are exposed to the psychosocial um or the social environment, but not all of us develop an eating disorder. So we can say that, yes, that plays a part, but it's not the cause. There's lots of people that have that kind of perfectionistic temperament and a kind of type A personality, very driven and, you know, wants things a certain way and very rigid, um, but not all people with that temperament develop an eating disorder either. either. So you can have that temperament plus the social factors and still not develop an eating disorder. So research that has been done by um, different uh, professionals around the country and um, Bulick, uh, Dr. Bulick down in North Carolina, um, have really shown that there's a strong genetic component to this illness. And so the heritability rates for like anorexia and bulimia are something like over 54% up to 80 some percent um, for the two of those. So that tells us that there's this genetic component, and that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle that kind of ties everything together. So if you have the genetic makeup, then the psych the social factors and then the temperament kind of creates the perfect storm for developing an eating disorder. And it's, it's always fascinating to me because those heritability rates that they've found for eating disorders are incredible. Now, the heritability rate for breast cancer is 27%. It's like half of what the heritability rates are identified for eating disorders. But do we ever have, or does society have any problem asking a young girl, is there a family history of breast cancer? And really hitting it and treating it early because they know that the earlier they catch it, the earlier they treat it, the better. Why aren't we doing the same for eating disorders? I don't know if many primary care doctors or pediatricians are like, is there a family history of eating disorders? You know, and they, they don't want to touch the issue because they don't want to upset the family like that they're accusing them of not being good parents or that their kid. And so they don't say anything. Um, another area where we miss a lot, too, is is in dentist. 
you know, dentists are seeing people and, and I know that they're looking at their teeth and seeing like the decay in the rotting away of like the enamel and it's becoming more transparent. And they probably are sitting there like, oh, this person's throwing up a lot or not taking care of themselves or whatever, but they don't say or do anything about it. And so I think that's where, you know, when we know these heritability rates and we see things that tell us something's going on, we can't be afraid to not say something or address it um, because we're afraid we might hurt somebody's feelings or make them mad. It's not really about hurting their feelings or making them mad. It could potentially be about saving their life, Um, especially if one's dying every 52 minutes. We got we have to talk about this. We can't just sit back. That's, you know, a really interesting uh, part about it, because with dentists, I, I, I wouldn't think about it right away. Um, I mean, uh, of course, now after having an eating disorder, I would, because, right. uh, um, you know, I, I've myself engaged in purging and, and know the, the consequences that come with it, dentist-wide, you know, when you go to the dentist. But, you know, parents take their kids to the dentist all the time, and that could be something that could really set off those red flags. Yeah. And, and, you know, set up the opportunity to at least get an assessment done and maybe catch it early enough to where we can get it back on track and it doesn't become a lifelong chronic illness. Absolutely. So a lot of different ways of, yeah. you know, having those preventative steps it just takes, you know, enough societal, you know, people standing behind us. It doesn't just fall on the parents. It falls on mm-hmm. professionals um, to be willing to say, OK, hey, we need to address this and not be worried about if somebody gets upset. I mean, people are going to get upset and they're probably getting upset because they know it's a problem, but they just are embarrassed by it or whatever. You can't take it personally. You know, I've had plenty of patients get really, really mad at me. And uh, if I took it personally all the time, I would have stopped doing this a long, long time ago because of some of the things that have been said and done. Um, But what I find is, is by staying consistent and not giving up and showing that you're going to be there, then some of the patients that I think hated me the most were, you know, apologetic, like all the time when they got better because they're like, I'm sorry, I get that way. It's it's the illness. You don't have to apologize. I I didn't take it personally and I knew you're struggling. And so I'm not going to judge you or, or, you know, not show you grace because you were struggling. It's just, it's crazy. Which, I mean, if we want to look at it from a bigger picture, we need to do that better as a society of being less judgmental and showing a little bit more grace to people because we don't know what they've been through or what they've struggled with. And so we can't just make these assumptions that they're a certain person based off of what we think we see because we're not seeing everything. And I think also, you know, all of this, when it comes to the societal piece of, Looking at how normal day comments that we don't think anything of can affect someone because, you know, just those simple comments can trigger someone that gets outside of a, you know, treatment center. I mean, they just went through, committed all their time to make themselves better and then they get right out to be right back in the spot. And it's same with substance abuse, you know, you, you go into rehab and then right when you come out, you're around the same setting. So it's, it's uh, that, that substance yeah. abuse can be a big problem in the eating disorder world too, mm-hmm. um, because you know for some patients who are you know more in line with the diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, will use excessive drinking as a way of excused self-induced vomiting. You know, um, so they might 
have a binge before they drink, drink a ton, and then they throw up, and then they don't feel guilty that they made themselves throw up because they threw up because they were just drunk. Said so there's uh, so many things, or the abuse of stimulant medications to suppress appetite. Um, so you can start to see a lot of drug and substance abuse problems in the eating disorder world too. That started off as behaviors to help the eating disorder or improve the eating disorder. Not that we want to improve it, but um, and turn into an abuse issue, you know, or, um, or an addiction. Uh, even you know, one thing that. Uh... I see a lot of younger people doing nowadays is drinking a lot of energy drinks, yep. which is, you know, a huge stimulant with the, the caffeine. Yep. And it's, it's goes unnoticed by, I think, a lot of parents. You drink three or four of those a day. You don't feel like eating. Exactly. You barely feel like standing still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, Definitely. Bou- you're bouncing out of your skin. So, yeah, it's, it's a... And then what's scarier is, is when they're drinking four or five of those a day and they don't seem faced by it. Mm-hmm. It's like, ooh, okay, that's that's going to be a long term problem because whenever you stop doing that, man, you're going to feel a mess. And the sugar, you know, effects right. on the teeth too. It it just becomes such a problem. But eating disorders are very uh, tricky when it comes to those, and uh, I think that overall, there's a lot of great resources from today, and all of these uh, will be uh, posted to our website as well. Um, for uh, further uh, review. Um, otherwise, I had a great time talking to Scott Bullock today, and it was really good to have you in today. Yeah, I'd love, I love talking about this. I think the more we can get it, the message out and talk about it, um, hopefully the better things can get or be. So thank you for having me on, the, on your show, and um, I love the place. I think this is a great set. I, I wish I would have known about this earlier in terms of uh, just the program and how much, how big it is internationally. Um, so, you know, keep doing what you guys are doing because it, it makes a difference. Absolutely. And for more information on Empower Half an Hour, go to our website at www.empowerhalfanhour.com. Until next time, have a great time, everyone. Mm-hmm.